One of the things that I did in college that I most enjoyed was serve on a multi-faith council. It was a two from every religious tradition, I think. We had two Muslims and two Jewish folks and two Christians and then two Unitarian Universalists, which didn't really seem fair based on the um, sort of population distribution on campus, but, um, but we got our two spots as well. And this multi-faith council was in charge of lots of different things, including creating a calendar of holidays for the whole uh, the whole campus so that everybody knew who would be busy when and who would be engaged in religious introspection when. But one of the things that I particularly remember about that time was a retreat that the council took. So this was maybe 10 or 15 students over a weekend. And we talked at that retreat about the topic of forgiveness. And part of it, of course, was just a chance away from campus and something different, a chance to be, to, to, to be together in a different way. But part of what I remember those many years ago was talking about what forgiveness meant in the different religious traditions from which we came. I particularly remember hearing from my Jewish and Christian colleagues about what it meant to seek forgiveness in their traditions and who could grant it to them. What stands out for me, and I'm sure it's a simplified understanding or an understanding that worked particularly or spoke particularly to these couple of people, but what stood out for me was the idea of the Christian understanding of being able to ask forgiveness for anything from God and a Jewish understanding of being able to ask forgiveness only from the person that you wronged, a relationship needed to ask and receive forgiveness. Now that raises some interesting questions about death, and actually we're going to explore forgiveness and, and what happens when there are those we need to forgive or be forgiven by whom we have lost during our Remembrance Sunday at the end of this month on October 27th. But I've been thinking about that and thinking especially, I think, about the Jewish concepts of forgiveness because of all of the Jewish holidays that we've had in the last month and a half. As some of you know, my daughter goes to a Jewish preschool, which means that she essentially did not have school in September, as far as I can tell. It was always um, another holiday. Um, and although there's a little bit of emergency childcare to put together because of that, it also is such a gift to me to learn about some of those ideas of forgiveness, some of those ideas behind, behind the Jewish holidays um, as they're taught to children. And the truth is that what we teach children about forgiveness and how to seek forgiveness is pretty well what we teach adults as well. It's certainly what we try to follow as adults, I think. I think about Mary's newsletter article on forgiveness this month, which talked about the ethical culture approach and the four R's. I loved it especially because I love alliteration <laughs> in anything. But the four R's of ethical culture forgiveness, recognizing, regretting, restoring, and renouncing. And how that ties in both to how we teach children and how we teach adults. How, how universal those four R's are in seeking right relationship after a wrong. But what about, I wonder, when we aren't sure if we want to forgive, when we aren't sure if forgiveness is even appropriate? What if when we think it's not forgiveness that's needed, but justice 
I've been thinking about that interplay between forgiveness and justice since I was a child. I did a coming-of-age program in my Unitarian Universalist congregation growing up, and one of our exercises was to take a little journal, a little spiral notebook, I still have it somewhere, um, and talk about each of the Unitarian Universalist principles, one per day. There are seven principles over the course of the week, and write about how we lived that principle in that day in our lives. And I remember so particularly the hardest principle, and the principles are things like the inherent worth of every person, that's the first one, and the last one is the interdependent web of life of which we're a part. I remember the very hardest principle to live. I think it's number five, although don't quote me, which is justice, equity, and compassion in all human relations. It doesn't say forgiveness, but for me, forgiveness is related to compassion, and I think that's what I struggled with as an eighth grader. I remember writing in that notebook, trying to figure out how to bring justice and equity and compassion to what was going on in in eighth grade to the girls at school who were doing what eighth grade girls do in school. When, how could I figure out when someone needed to be told on to the teacher, when they needed to get in trouble because something just wasn't fair, they weren't behaving right, and when did I need to be compassionate and forgiving to turn the other Unitarian Universalist cheek? These days, I have been thinking about that idea, justice, equity, and compassion, not happily in relationship to eighth grade girls. Isn't it nice that we don't need to go back and do eighth grade again? I think about that sometimes. I'm so glad. But in relationship to something much broader, thinking about the criminal justice system in America, Barry mentioned the common, the, the read that our book group will be doing, which was the common read actually for both the Unitarian Universalist Association and the American Ethical Union in the past year or two, the new Jim Crow, which talks about this epidemic of mass incarceration in America. And I've talked about it here before. I know many of you have read that book and engaged in different ways with the American Ethical Union's priorities around criminal justice and looking at that work. I want to quote just um, to get a little bit of a sense of the numbers. (coughs) Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, wrote, uh, in less than 30 years, so this is since 1982 when the war on drugs began, not coincidentally. That's my note. Michelle Alexander says it more eloquently. In less than 30 years, the U.S. penal population exploded from around 300,000 to more than 2 million with drug convictions accounting for the majority of the increase. The United States now has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. I'll say that again. The highest rate of incarceration in the world. Dwarfing the rates of nearly every developed country, even surpassing those in highly repressive regimes like Russia, China, and Iran. In Germany, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. So 93 for every 100,000. In the United States, the rate is eight times that, 750 per 100,000. So that's sort of the big macro level around criminal justice, and there are lots of opportunities to engage in that. I I echo Mary's suggestion that you think about coming to that book group, reading The New Jim Crow. 
I've been thinking about it as well on a much more human level recently, on an individual level. As I've started to get to know some folks, part of an organization called Family and Friends of Incarcerated People. And you'll actually get a chance to hear from um, the director of that program later during the collection. We hosted a fundraiser for Family and Friends of Incarcerated People last month, and they are the recipient of our Share the Plate for the month of October. The thing that I particularly enjoyed about getting to know FFOIP, they like to be an acronym just the way we do, uh, WES and FFOIP. The thing I've enjoyed about FFOIP is the chance to really kind of build relationships and learn on a much more individual level about experiences in incarceration and particularly coming back um, and families of those who are incarcerated. There's been a long history, actually, at West and in ethical culture in general, of ethical culture supporting uh, prisoners' rights, supporting um, folks who are in, uh, who are incarcerated in the criminal justice system. There was a prison art show here at West in the 70s, which drew some concerns from neighbors at the time, I hear, and I'm proud that we had it anyway. And then visiting programs in other ethical societies around the country. I think it's because we recognize something deep there around human worth. Folks who have been essentially deemed not worthy by society and whose worth were then called in particular to lift up, to hold on to, to name. And that's what I've been thinking about, about our criminal justice system, that there is an extent to which it says that folks who are incarcerated really aren't worthy in the same way that other people are. You may know some of what faces people when they leave incarceration and come back into the community called returning citizens. Returning citizens, particularly those who are incarcerated for drug offenses, are ineligible for many federal benefits, including benefits around food stamps and housing. Jobs are very difficult to get for returning citizens. And so in some ways, as we send folks off to incarceration, to this kind of separation and isolation, it's pretty clear to me that not only are we not forgiving, we're not really rehabilitating in the system today. It's more like condemning and forgetting. I think it's it's hard to tackle the idea of Forgiveness, rehabilitation, coming back together in the criminal justice system. There are folks that I know to be deeply compassionate people who get caught up in the idea of consequences. You know, that someone has made a mistake so great that they should be locked up and the key thrown away. And of course, folks do truly horrendous things sometimes, and the safety of the community is important, consequences are important. But it's hard for me to say that the key, the key to another human being should ever be thrown away, really. That the key should ever, should ever be thrown away, that there should ever be a time when we can't say that we can still unlock the worth of another human being. So I think back to those great four R's, which you probably have memorized by now, right? I've said them a couple of times. You read them already. Recognize, regret, restore, and renounce. And I think about our criminal justice system in America, which asks for recognition. That's actually the jury system in a lot of ways, right? Recognition of the crime. It hopes for regret, I think. It certainly expects renunciation 
of the crime and of future crimes, although our justice system also has an extremely high recidivism rate. So I would argue that the renunciation part isn't really working the way we're running it. And I wonder if that's because our criminal justice system almost never works for restoration. That third R. It's one reason that I really like the work that FFOIP does. They support families and communities, folks who are left behind when people are incarcerated. It was actually started, um, was kind of a dream of the founders while they were incarcerated and organizing within the prison system itself. And when they returned, wanted to work, as they say, to avoid intergenerational incarceration, to build up the community and the families so that folks stay connected and so that when folks come back from prison, they're able to come back into a community that has remained connected, into a family that has remained connected with them. And that's such a key part of restoration, I think, in any community, the chance to stay connected, to build those connections. One thing you may not know about the D.C. criminal justice system in particular is that because D.C. has a jail but no prison, so a place to house people briefly but not for a long period of time, D.C. prisoners are actually sent all over the country. Um, and so the possibility for family to visit folks who are incarcerated is extremely limited. Um, one of the things that FFOIP is doing in the next couple of months is actually um, uh, raising funds for buses to take a busload of folks to two different prisons where a number of D.C. prisoners are housed so that they can have family time with each other. And I'm hopeful that we can help them help support that work in particular, those buses. But then I think, what about a whole new model of justice? You know, what if the answer isn't just buses, although that's part of it, right? Staying connected, keeping families able to communicate with each other. But what about a whole different model? Many of you know about the model of restorative justice, which is just starting to gain traction in America, particularly in juvenile courts. I actually went to the Department of Justice website, which uses restorative justice in, um, talks about restorative justice from the juvenile perspective for, for juvenile offenders. And this is what they say. Restorative justice is a theory of justice that emphasizes repairing the harm caused by criminal behavior. While most approaches to juvenile justice concentrate on punishing or treating delinquent youths, the restorative justice process seeks to repair the harm by involving the entire community in rehabilitating offenders and holding them accountable for their behavior. Under the restorative justice model, questions are framed differently, not just what laws have been broken or what punishment does the offender deserve, but what is the nature of the harm resulting from the crime? What needs to be done to repair the harm? End quote. There are all kinds of practical reasons you can imagine, you know, that this model of restorative justice is a good one and a helpful one in America. It keeps people out of prisons. We talked already about that high mass incarceration rate, you know, that the number of folks in prison, which has an economic impact in America, um, as well as, as tearing families apart. So it keeps people out of prisons, particularly for nonviolent crimes, drug offenses, things like that. But it also involves the community in the conversation. It looks to the community itself for wisdom on how to proceed after a crime has been committed. Restorative justice keeps communities together. You know, our criminal justice system 
tears them apart, literally creating isolation and separation between the offender and the community, the offender and the victim. This one actually has the potential to build community, and it requires the involvement of the community, the offender, and the victim, all of them working together to come up with a response, the active participation of all those parties. The deeper piece for me, though, around restorative justice beyond the practical is the philosophical interplay of justice and mercy, justice and forgiveness. To me, it's what I wish our actual full criminal justice system were, a place where real rehabilitation is possible, where the goal isn't punishment, but restoration, healing, a coming back together of a community hurt by a crime. It's funny, as I thought about this platform and I was learning a little bit more about restorative justice and about the traditional criminal justice system, and how I connected the two to the topic of forgiveness, I realized that neither justice system actually asks for forgiveness or requires it. Not the criminal justice system itself, certainly, but not restorative justice either. There are plenty of amazing stories about people who have forgiven crimes against them and against their families. And I think Mary will explore some of those stories on an international level on October 20th. Some of those really... um, deeply spiritual stories of forgiveness. But even the restorative justice system doesn't require people to forgive, to participate in it. It requires community participation. It requires community conversation about consequences and rehabilitation. It's not a a, a fuzzy kind of heart sort of thing. So it got me wondering why it is that I think restorative justice might be connected to forgiveness since it's not a requirement of the system itself. And thinking about the environments that we can create for forgiveness. Because I think that that's what restorative justice work tends to do. That it tends to lead to forgiveness more than traditional criminal justice systems. And I say traditional meaning sort of modern American criminal justice systems. It tends to lead to forgiveness an awful lot more than that traditional system. I think it's about the connection that it creates. The way that it asks people to work together for a solution. Rather than separating the wronged and the wronger, it connects them more deeply. It looks at the whole system, too, the way that crimes don't just happen out of context. People don't just wake up one day and decide, oh, I think I'll break this law today. You know, that was on my to-do list for Tuesday. It looks at the community, the neighborhood, the city that creates a context in which people find crime to be a logical choice, a context or a system in which it seems like the only choice. And that idea of connection, that's what FFOIP is trying to do as well, looking at a community affected by crime, generations affected by crime and incarceration, and the way that those two things play off each other and feed off each other, the cycle of incarceration that continues over generations within a community. So I think, I think somehow it's that kind of environment, an environment where people are trying to work with each other, to stay connected, to repair together, that forgiveness is most likely to flourish. That environment created by an organization like FFOIP or by restorative justice systems, systems that call us to be a community accountable together, 
to find accountability within the wisdom of the community, those wronged and those who wrong. Justice and mercy, justice and forgiveness. My eighth grade self was right, I think. It's a hard one. Hard to have them at the same time. But I think it might also be essential. I look back at that multi-faith council <clears throat> from college and the idea of forgiveness in different religious traditions. And you know, mercy and justice are entwined in many religious traditions as well. All through both the Jewish and Christian scriptures, God is portrayed as both just and merciful. There's plenty of theological conversation over the centuries about which one of those wins at any given time, more just or more merciful, but they're both held out as divine attributes, and therefore attributes worth emulating. And I think you see it in the stories of those traditions, too, stories that allow for both the consequence of bad judgment and also reconciliation, restoration of community. The criminal justice system in America as it stands now is based on the idea of separation, of isolation. Imagine looking at that whole system through the lens of restorative justice, through the lens of community, of a network of accountability, and asking the network, the family, the neighborhood, the city to seek repair of the crime, hand in hand with the offender, hand in hand with the victim. I think we can create a better America on this front. We created the system we have now, after all, and we can create a new one. One that seeks both justice and creates an environment for forgiveness. A criminal justice system that could make all of America less broken and more whole.